Open your Bibles back up to the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Romans chapter 15, page 1138, if you're using a few Bible. As the weeks go by, I become a little more and more sad or wistful or something, just thinking about this great epistle and how it's coming to an end. It's kind of like inviting people over to your home for, for, a, for a meal and fellowship and, and you just have a really wonderful evening together and it goes on and on and the Lord just binds your hearts together in the process and you just deepen that friendship. And, but the end of the evening comes and it's time for people to go home and it's sad you don't want the evening to end. You don't, you've got something magical going, as it were, and you, you don't want it to come to an end. And boy, as we're pushing real close here to the end of this book of Romans, that's the way my heart is feeling about all of this, that this has become such a good friend to me and, and I believe to us as a, as a body, as we have, have worked through the great doctrines of the faith that the Apostle Paul labored so hard to, to put pen to paper and, and record for us. And so here we are, we're working our way through and for this morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 13 and, and finishing up this series we've entitled How to Live Free in Christ. Begins all the way back in chapter 14 and verse 1 and has carried us all the way through here to the middle of chapter 15. But as we dig in this morning... I think it's important for us in order to understand the significance of Paul's lesson to us for us this morning is that we lay a little bit of foundation, a little bit of background. So let me let me do that for you. We need some background with regard to the relationship between Jew and Gentile in the first century. We don't have anything like it in our times. We don't we don't know what this is like. We primarily comprising a Gentile church here. We, we don't feel what they felt. We don't understand the, the weight of the issues, the force of the statements the Apostle Paul's made, and, and we can't until we begin to try to grasp what it was like in the first century. In the Old Testament, Gentiles were readily, readily admitted into Jewish society. They were not the barriers we see a couple of easy illustrations of that. A review, a quick review of King David's mighty men reveals the fact that there are many, many Gentile names that were there part of the bodyguard of the king. They were that close to power in the nation of Israel in those days. Or we can think of another example. The building of Solomon's great temple and, and how he employed Gentile architects and builders to help him in the construction of the great temple of their God. The Old Testament, the relationship between Jew and Gentile was far closer, far closer. But when we open the pages of the New Testament, we see something has dramatically changed. It's different. There has been something that has happened from Old Testament to New. Because when we open the pages of the New Testament, 
The attitude of the Jewish people towards Gentiles is one of aversion and contempt. Gentiles were considered to be idolaters. Idolaters. They were defiled. In fact, they were considered so defiled that even the dust from Gentile lands, if it was brought back into the land of Israel, would defile the land. And so they had to they had to knock the dust off the shoes of their feet before they would enter back into their holy land. By the time of the first century, the opening of the New Testament, it was it was unlawful to have friendly social relations between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles were the enemies of God and the enemies of his people. So even the knowledge of God was to be denied to them. In fact, if they asked about God, they were to be refused knowledge and cursed for even taking his name upon their lips. Even if somehow they became a follower of the one true God, they could never be admitted into full fellowship with God's people. They were always held at a distance Never could come close. Gentile homes were considered unclean. And and so for a pious Jew, they would not want to enter into their homes. And the reason they were considered unclean is because of the idolatry that they were persuaded went on there. To enter into a Gentile home was to enter into the presence of idols and it would defile you. and, And thus you would have no part of it. Even for those few brave souls that somehow might invite a Gentile into their home. The Jewish souls, that is. They had to watch them like a hawk. They could never leave them alone. Because they might wander off in your home and they might, they might touch something like your, your food supply. And if they even touched it with your hand, they would defile the family food supply. And so you couldn't leave them alone. They had to watch them. Suspicion, antagonism, hostility marked the relationship. 19th century Jewish Christian Alfred Edersheim writes as follows, quote, Even the Mishnah, and the Mishnah was a, a written record of oral tradition written around A.D. 200, so a little bit after the pages of the New Testament, but, but it captures the idea. Even the Mishnah goes so far as to forbid aid to a mother in the hour of need or nourishment to her babe in order not to bring up another child for idolatry. That is, don't even help her deliver her Gentile child, because all you'll do is bring another idolater into the world. This was the attitude of the Jewish people towards their Gentile neighbors. But the hatreds were not all one-sided. It ran in two directions. The Greeks and the Romans, they considered the Jews to be arrogant to be stubborn, and to be fanatically devoted to their invisible God. They would rather fight than submit. And that made them exasperatingly ungovernable. They refused to adopt modern culture, to accept modern ways. They persisted in their old way of doing things. They were exasperating people. These mutual hatreds and animosities reached their peak 
in AD 66 with the outbreak of the rebellion in Galilee that eventually spread throughout the whole entire nation until four years later in AD 70, the walls of Jerusalem were flattened and the temple was destroyed. The people were carried away into the permanent diaspora. What happened? How did things change? How was it that the the relative harmony between Jew and Gentile, when you read the pages of the Old Testament, how did it change so much that when the the New Testament falls open, we have such a radical difference? What happened? The answer is found in the events following the Babylonian captivity. You'll remember the book of Esther. How in the book of Esther... She rises up to save her people from annihilation at the hands of the Persians under Xerxes' rule in 483. Later, Alexander the Great conquers that part of the world and establishes his empire. And when he dies prematurely, his empire is divided into four kingdoms. One of those kingdoms contains the land of Israel. And the Greek rule of the people of Israel was brutal. It was harsh. It culminated in the the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes in, in 175 to 163 B.C., who according to Daniel chapters 8 and 9 is the precursor to the Antichrist to come. They slaughtered the Jews. They oppressed them. They hated them. And the feelings ran in two directions. The New Testament falls open in your lap. Rome is in the seat of power. Rome was brutal. Rome ruled with an iron fist. Rome had no patience for these backward, stubborn people. And so it was a continual series of conflicts between the Jewish people and their Roman overlords. Another factor that separates these people is the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law itself, given by the hand of God 2,000 years earlier. A law that set out certain sacred days, established certain food regulations with regard to what one could eat or not eat, what defiled one by what they consumed. It separated people. It pushed people away. It just further contributed to the animosity. How is it going to be possible for two groups of people to live together as one? How can two groups of people separated by religious taboos, cultural practices and and ancient prejudices possibly be brought together in one body? Worshiping together as brother and sister in Christ. How is that possible? It is only possible through the grace of God, through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the power of God. Do you want evidence of the power of God and the gospel to change lives? Look at the church. The fact that two ancient enemies could be made one new people in Christ is an amazing testimony to the power of the gospel to change a man's soul. Beloved, the gospel not only reconciles us vertically with God, it reconciles us horizontally with each other. It makes us one new man 
And that takes us to the final lesson that Paul has for us here with regard to how to live free in Christ. That lesson is that we are to accept one another in a spirit of grace. We are to accept one another in a spirit of grace. Paul has been hammering away at the issue of unity in the church. He's spent a long time talking to the strong and and saying you need to open wide your arms. You need to, to accept and receive in the weak. And for the weak, he's saying you need to restrain yourself and and overcome the temptation to judge those whose scruples don't match your own. Paul's going to complete his teaching here. Look at verse 7. He begins with the word wherefore. He's, he's drawing it now to a conclusion. And his final argument is he's going, to, he's going to point to the gracious work of Christ in saving both Jew and Gentile and bringing them together. That's his, that's his closing argument. In a sense, he's, he's kept his most powerful argument to the end. This is the clincher. If none of the other things persuaded you, this must persuade you. Unity in Christ. We have been placed together in the body on equal footing. Let me read it for you. Wherefore, Paul says, wherefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentile. In him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul provides for us three reasons here. Three reasons in this text why we must accept one another in a spirit of grace. Three reasons why we must accept one another in a spirit of grace. The first is in verse 7, and it's because we have been saved in the same way. We have been saved in the same way. Accept one another, Paul says, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Paul uses the same verb here, translated accept, as he uses to begin his whole discussion back in chapter 14, verse 1, where there he opens up and he says, now accept the one who is weak. It's the exact same verb. Back in 14, verse 1, it was directed to the strong, to the the spiritually robust within the church. Here it's directed to everyone. You see it, verse 7, except one another. So he's broadened it now, and he's speaking to both groups, both strong and weak, and he's saying, Accept one another. The idea is to receive someone into your home, into your fellowship, to throw wide your arms to them and embrace them. Pull them in. Don't push them away. And so he's saying here to both strong and weak, throw open your arms, pull together with one another. 
It's like bookends. The use of this verb is they're like bookends either side of this great section. Just as in chapter 14, verse 1, the verb is in a present tense, meaning it's an ongoing requirement. It's an imperative verb. It's a command. It's something we're to do. And we're to do it not just once, but constantly. Throwing open our arms constantly to one another. Pulling one another to our bosoms. The difference, though, is unlike chapter 14, verse 1, here Paul grounds the command in the work of Christ. Do you see it? Verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us. He grounds this command now in, a, in something even deeper, even more powerful. That is the work of Christ in saving us. As Christ has thrown open his arms, we're to throw open ours. Just as Christ has welcomed us. How did Christ welcome you? What did it look like? How would we describe our reception by Christ? If we're, to, if we're to be just as he has done, if he is our example, and by the way, Paul uses that kind of language in several places. He talks in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 that we're to forgive each other just as Christ also has forgiven us, setting our example. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2, we're to walk in love just as Christ has loved us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, you are to love your wives just as what? Christ loved the church. And so he, he thinks this way about Christ. And so he brings it to bear here and he says, listen, as Christ has thrown open his arms to you, so you throw open your arms. So what did it look like? How did Jesus throw open his arms to you? Well, begin with, he did it without hesitation. Christ accepted me. He accepted you. He accepted us without hesitation. Without hesitation. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, page 969. Let us be reminded of how Christ threw open wide his arms for us. Matthew 11, beginning in verse 28, page 969. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Come to me, he says. Without hesitation, he throws his arms wide to whoever will hear. Come to me. If you're weary, if you're heavy laden, come. Come. Turning back to the right to John chapter 7 and verse 37. Page 1068, John 7 and verse 37. We see another expression of Jesus' arms wide open. Beckoning us to come. John 7 and verse 37, he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. 
Just picture this. Here it is, a crowded time in the, in the temple area. And it's the middle of a feast. And, and Jesus stands up and he just yells out, If anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink, he says. Without hesitation. You're thirsty? Come. You're hungry? Come. You're weary? Come. You're heavy laden? Come. Come to Christ. Without hesitation. Christ also welcomes us without precondition. So it's without hesitation and it's without precondition. That is, nothing has to change before you come to Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, page 1129. But God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, page 1187. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. It's without precondition. It means that we don't have to clean up our act to come to Christ. That we come to Christ in the midst of our sin. In the midst of our fallenness, our broken, shattered lives. Some people think that they're not worthy to come to Christ. They need to, let me get my life a little more squared away and then I'll come to Christ. What a, what a mistaken view of the gospel. What a mistaken view of the gospel and what an overestimate of human ability. Beloved, there are no conditions other than the sense of thirst or hunger or weariness to come to Christ. Turn to Him in faith and He will receive you. We don't clean up our act before we come to Christ. We don't become religious before we come to Christ. We don't read our Bibles before we come to Christ. We don't go through the, the Christianese before we come to Christ. We come to Christ when we sense our need. Without hesitation, He throws His arms wide open. Without precondition, He receives all who will come to Him. And without favoritism, He makes His offer available. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Page 1066. John 6 and verse 37. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. You need not fear. You need not fear that, that somehow you, you come to Christ and He says, I'm sorry. I'm not interested in you. I'm interested in the other person. I'm interested in the person who's, who's more socially mobile. I'm interested in the person who's wealthier. I'm interested in the person who has the right family connections. I'm interested in the person who's got a college degree. I'm interested in the person whose life has not been broken by crime and, and depravity. Oh, I'm not interested in you. Oh, no. That's not our Savior. That's not Christ. Christ says, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. My arms are wide. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 2 and verse 11, page 1126. 
He says there is no partiality with God. Wow. There is no partiality with God. There are no favored races, favored nations, favored people groups. The Savior is available for all who know their need. Acts chapter 10 and verse 34, page 1101. Old Peter, he had to learn something here, didn't he? Peter had to learn a lesson. He had to learn it more than once, by the way. That's what I like about Peter. He's so human. He doesn't get it always the first time. He learns it and then he forgets it and then he has to learn it again. I like that because I'm human. I don't get it all the first time. I don't, I don't remember everything I learned. I don't always do what I want to do. I don't, I don't always fulfill my, my greatest desires, my highest and best goals, my aspirations. I fall short. So I like Peter. Verse 34, in the, mouth of a Gent- or in the home of a Gentile, Peter opens his mouth and he said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Wow. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? In the, in the light of the context of Jew and Gentile, 500 years of hostilities where they wouldn't even lift a finger to help one another. They wouldn't cross the street to help someone dying in the gutter. And now Peter says, I, now I get it. Understand, God is no respecter of persons. Any who will come to him are welcome wide open. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. Beloved, we have been received by Christ as a matter of pure grace. Put away the notion that you have accepted Christ. And rejoice in the notion that Christ has accepted you. And he has called you to himself. But maybe there are some here this morning for whom that statement cannot be said. Maybe there are some here this morning who are still hungry, still weary, still thirsty, still on the outside, still don't understand the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. The Savior's arms are wide open to you today. You may come, you may come now, you may come where you are. You call out to Him in faith. Why are we to receive one another in a spirit of grace? Because we've been saved the exact same way. Maybe I can illustrate it for you this way. Suppose I were to, to throw a little dinner party at my house. And I were to invite several families to my home for the dinner party that we're to have. Some come in through the front door. Others come in through the side door. 
One group comes in through the garage. They're now all gathered around my table and and they're enjoying this banquet together. And I have to walk out of the room for a minute to do something. And they begin to argue with one another. And they argue about how they got to the table. One says, well, I came in through the front door. And someone else says, yeah, but I came in through the side. I only came in through the garage. I must be nobody. And they begin to argue and judge and chip at one another. And I walk into the room and and I see this going on and I say, Friends! Friends! I've invited you to my home to eat. Eat! Relax! Enjoy the feast I prepared for you. You're all here. How you got here, it doesn't matter. You're here. Eat. (laughs) The Messiah's banquet is open. Come, eat. Eat. We're saved in the same way. Secondly, we have to accept one another in a spirit of grace because we're part of the same body. We're part of the same body. Back to Romans 15. I don't even know where you were, but I'm, I'm back now in Romans 15. <laughs> Romans 15. We're part of the same body. Verses 8 through 12. We, we must accept one another be, because of the theological reality of the church itself. Notice verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant. Diakonos. Uh, we translate that deacon. He's become a deacon. He's become a servant, it says, to the circumcision. And of, he's become a servant for the Gentiles. Verse 9. The Lord of glory humbled himself. He left the throne room of glory. He came to earth as a man. He humbled himself. He became a servant of all. Why? Why? That he might reconcile all into one new man. Paul lays it out here in kind of two propositions. Verse 8, he became the servant to, to confirm, it says, to bring about, to bring to realization the ancient promises that God had given to his people. You see it in verse 8? He became a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm, that is to establish, to bring to realization the promises given to the fathers. Those promises begin back in Genesis chapter 12 with a, a promise to Abraham. They are expanded and confirmed in Genesis chapter 15 and then interestingly in Genesis chapter 17 where circumcision comes in as a sign of the promise. So we know here in verse 8 when he became a servant to the circumcision, he's talking about him becoming a servant to the Jewish people. He became a servant to the Jewish people that he might confirm, that he might bring about the, the, the realization of the ancient promises, the promise to Abraham. The promise to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. The continuing promises through the prophets that Messiah would someday come. And he would come to redeem his ancient people and to establish a kingdom upon which he would sit. David's own throne. 
Jesus himself, by the way, he characterizes his own ministry when he comes. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul reflects it in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, where he says, When in the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law. That is the Jew. The Jew. Get this in your mind and hang on to it. Jesus came to save the Jewish people. He came to save the Jewish people. But in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of the Father, to come again in the Father's timing, there will be a future not just for Israel, but it encompasses all the world. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Savior of the world. And in and in coming the first time, he throws open wide the gate of God's mister or God's mercy to the Gentile peoples. So Paul says here in verse nine, he came to glorify God, that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Now I have to think carefully with me on this. Jeremiah chapter thirty-one is a place where we find the new covenant foretold. There in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in verse 31, he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers, which they broke. The new covenant inaugurated at Pentecost when the Spirit of God came was a covenant made with the Jewish people. And it has been opened wide to include Gentile participation. Maybe the best way to see all of this is to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Let me take you over there. Ephesians chapter 2, page 1170. I heard someone say not long ago that a good sermon should make your head ache and your heart burn. Well, I hope your heart's burning. I'll see what I can do about making your head ache. Take you to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. It's really hard for us. We're, we're Gentiles. So we think with a Gentile orientation. We read the Bible with a Gentile orientation. We think about Jesus as coming, coming for the Gentiles. We, we forget the fact that He is Israel's Messiah. And He came for her. Verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the state of the nations. What do I love? Verse 13. Take a look at it. But now, 
In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. In the death of Christ. When he hung on that cross, he died for his people. He died to redeem the Jewish people. And he, in the same process, threw wide open their covenant that Gentiles, by faith in Israel's Messiah, may come pouring in. Oh, praise God for his mercy. Praise God for his mercy. For we sit here this morning as demonstrations of that mercy. Listen to me. The Old Testament always contemplated Gentile worship. It always contemplated Gentile worship. The terms of the covenant with Abraham itself, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12, verse 3. It always anticipated Gentile worship, what the Old Testament never foresaw and never anticipated was that Jew and Gentile would come in before God together on equal footing as one new man. That the Gentiles would no longer have to come in via Israel, that they come in together in the church. Chapter 3, verse 6. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery of Christ, the end of verse 4. To be specific, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. By our faith attachment to Israel's Messiah, we pour in and receive the spiritual blessings of that new covenant. Paul demonstrates this to us back to Romans chapter 15. Paul demonstrates that for us. By including four Old Testament citations here. Verses 9, 10, 11, 12. Four citations out of the Old Testament. They're drawn from the law, the prophets, and the writings. In effect, they're drawn from the entire Old Testament. And he does that in order to, to, to remind everyone that Gentile inclusion was always out there that God always intended Jew and Gentile to worship him together just not as one new man they didn't see it as one new man let me show you something back in the book of Acts Let's take a little field trip Acts chapter 11 page 1102 Peter has preached in the house of a Gentile, Cornelius. Cornelius and his family have come to faith in Israel's Messiah. The Spirit of God has fallen upon them. They have evidenced it by their speaking in tongues. But when Peter goes back and reports to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they're upset. 
They're upset with it all. And, and so Peter must defend what he has seen happen, what he has done. And, and he does that. When you get down to verse 17, you see the most amazing response of the people. Their conclusion to Peter's testimony is, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? If God has opened it up to them like he opened it up to us at Pentecost, who was I to stand in God's way, Peter says? You hang on to that thought and you turn a couple more pages to the right to Acts chapter 15, page 1107. There's still ongoing disputes about how do Gentiles come in before Israel's God? Must they come in via the law? The Jerusalem Council is called to put an end to that discussion once for all. But there's an amazing statement here in verse 11. It says, we believe that we, that is the Jews, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they, that is Gentiles, also are. Do you understand that? What they conclude is not that they are saved like us any longer, but now we are saved like them. It's been ripped wide open. It has been torn wide open. It is no longer Jewish priority. The Gentiles are pouring in. They're flooding in. They're receiving the benefit of the new covenant promise of the indwelling spirit. The Old Testament never could never see this. Not until Christ came, died, rose again. Back to Romans 15. Paul's point in all this, maybe I can summarize it for you. Paul's point in all of this is that access to God for both Jew and Gentile is on a level playing field now. It is a level playing field. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And in the process here, he is reminding the weak, who are mainly, we determined some weeks ago, Jewish Christians, right? He's reminding the weak that the strong are full members of the people of God. That's why he includes back here in verses 9 and following these Old Testament citations. They are full functioning members of the people of God. These Gentiles who have come flooding in, who are, who are pressing your scruples and driving you crazy. He's also reminding the strong at the very same time that their access to God is through a Jewish Messiah. Through a Jewish Messiah. It rests upon the work of a Jewish Messiah. shouldn't surprise us that Paul would make this kind of an argument, by the way, because that's an entire argument of Romans, the first part of Romans chapter 11. Isn't that right? It talks about the root of the olive tree, the branches that were snapped off and others grafted in. And it says, do not boast. Do not boast. This is very much in Paul's mind. We're part of one body. We've come in the same way. We've come in through faith in Israel's Messiah, and we stand equal on that ground. 
There is no priority. There is no preference. There is no respect for persons. How does that affect how we live one with another inside the church? Should be obvious, shouldn't it? If we stand on a level playing field before God based on Christ, then how can we think more highly of ourselves or less of someone else? We come in together. That takes us to our third reason that Paul gives us here. Verse 13. We're saved in the same way. We're part of one body. We have to accept each other because we have the same hope. Verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's another prayer wish. Saw that back in verse 5, right? Paul prays there. It's another prayer wish. Now may the God of hope fill you, he says. He's asking here that God would grant to this church made up of Jew and Gentile that they would would have a peace and a joy that comes only through believing in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Fill you with all power and joy in believing, he says. Yes, you have differences. Some of you have food scruples that you are not able to get over right now. Others of you, your conscience has been liberated from such things. You feel like you can eat whatever you want, and indeed you can. But listen to me, it's not about what you eat. Because into the mouth it doesn't matter. The day that you establish to celebrate one day over another, it doesn't matter. These things are shadows. The reality of the matter is, is that by the indwelling power of the Spirit of God, we are in one body together and we have one hope together. And it is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're hoping Him. May He fill you with hope that you may abound in hope, He says, by the power of the Spirit of God. When we have our eyes on the horizon, that is on each other, that's when we begin to see the differences and they begin to bother us. I look at you and you look at me and we're kind of different and I'm not really sure about you and you're not so sure about me. See, when we put those eyes up, when we look up for our hope to come, for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look up, when we gaze up, when we we place our focus up, when we think up, to the return of Christ, then the horizontal things, they don't matter so much anymore. It's when churches lose the vision of what Christ is doing and the imminency of His return that they begin to focus inward. They begin to squabble one with another. They begin to claw and bite and chew on each other. They forget we're here for a purpose. And we're here for a time. And beloved, the days grow short. The days grow short. No man knows the time of the return of Christ. But He's coming. He's coming. It is our hope. Paul would have them, those Roman Christians, focus on that hope and he would have us focus on it as well. 
This, by the way, is not a hope like, I, gee, I hope I get a new pair of slippers for Christmas. Hey, not that kind of hope. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. This is a dead set certainty. This is what one builds their life upon. This is what, this is what one thinks about. This is the way one orders themselves. Looking for the return of Jesus Christ and busy about the Master's work until He comes. Christians and churches who are engaged that way, they have no time to squabble with one another. They have no time to fight about the non-issues. Their eyes are looking for the return of Christ. It's a reality. And it's rooted in His cross work. It is a glorious thing that in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile could be made one new man in Christ. Is that true? Two irreconcilable groups of people made one in Christ. That's why I say Paul has kept his greatest argument till now. This is the clincher. Because if Jew and Gentile can be made one in Christ together on a level playing field, no priority one over another, not one closer to God than the other, then you see, we must understand all these temporal things that separate us, they're nothing. They're just nothing. How insignificant. How insignificant compared to the reconciliation of the ancient enemies into one new man who love one another and live together in a family, in a body called the church. Beloved, our love for one another, our our commitment to each other, our, our willingness to, out of love, suppress our independent use of preferences, out of love to, to get over our foibles with one another, is mandated by the theological reality of what Christ has done. We have no options. We have none. I want to extend a invitation to those among you who are sensing within your heart a call of God. Not sure what's going on, but what you sense within your heart right now, that Christ, His arms are open for you and you do not know Him. I'm going to pray. Ron's going to sing. I'm not going to ask you to come down in front of everybody. Don't worry. But I want to make myself available down here in front. As, as the service closes, as people are up and mingling around, I want you to come forward. And I want, I want to talk to you about, about the reality that you too can know Christ today. Let's pray. Our Father, to think about the gospel as tearing down the ancient barriers, as eliminating the ancient hostilities, as forging together 
two people groups so long separated and suspicious of one another into one new man. Where in Christ Jesus, there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There is no advantage. One is not closer than the other. One is not more loved of God than the other. One doesn't have a higher place at the table than another. That we all come in the same way. Sensing our need. Throwing ourselves on your mercy. I thank you for the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is able to make one new man. And I thank you that that power is available to us today, this morning, at Foothill Bible Church. The power of the gospel that can overcome our divisions. Overcome our suspicions. Overcome the foibles and the irritants that we have one with another. Oh Lord, I thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. And I pray that you would enable us to use that freedom for the glory of Christ as we proclaim the gospel and live the gospel in this community. I pray as well, O oh Lord, for that one among us whose heart has been tugged, who knows their need for the Savior. O oh Lord, I pray that today would be their day. As Christ's arms lie wide open, I pray that they would come. In Jesus' name, amen.